This is a Federal News Network podcast. A federal attorney steeped in administrative law now has a chance to influence it. He's general counsel at AmeriCorps. He's also spent years developing and teaching courses on administrative law and government oversight. Now he's just been appointed a member of the Council of the Administrative Conference of the United States. Fernando LaGuarda joins me now. Mr. LaGuarda, good to have you with us. Tom, it's great to be here with you. Thanks very much. And just a quick detail question. Is being a member of the council a full-time job or do you get to stay at AmeriCorps or how does that work? Being a member of the council is not a full-time job. It is essentially like being a member of the board of the organization. So I will participate because I haven't done it yet in council and conference meetings, but I am not a full-time employee at ACUS. I am a full-time employee at AmeriCorps. Okay. And we had your new chief executive officer, Michael Smith, on the show just a few months ago when he was appointed. Let's talk about administrative law for a minute. Of all of the branches of law that a lawyer can go into, you could have been an ambulance chaser making millions. You could have done federal procurement and had rich clients that are suing the government. You chose administrative law as a specialty, which to the general public might sound arcane, but what's the attraction of it? Administrative law is what touches the majority of people. It's about the health, safety, welfare, and well-being of people. Administrative agencies make more law, adjudicate more cases, affect more rights, responsibilities, touch on the liberties of Americans, and have the potential to contribute so much to our well-being that, of course, it's where I want to be because When I decided to go to law school, my question to my mother, who was advising me, was, does the world need another lawyer? And my mom said, well, the world always needs another good lawyer. And where can you do good? You can do good in a lot of places. But I ended up with a very amazing career doing administrative law in front of the FCC, the FTC, the PTO, the Bureau of Export Administration, the Library of Congress many agencies realizing how they touch on so many different interesting issues. It's just been a wonderful career. And right now, the Federal Trade Commission and I believe a couple of other agencies are facing a constitutional Supreme Court challenge to the way they conduct administrative law and whether it's constitutional. Has that come up much in the inquiries you've done over the years? That hasn't been the subject matter of a lot of my research, the constitutionality of those agencies. I think it's important for those issues to get work through the courts. But my work has been more on the output of the agencies and not their legitimacy. All right. And with respect to the output, then administrative law to me seems to have a lot to do with making sure that what Congress has delegated to agencies is done in a fair manner. Is that kind of the animating principle that should be in agencies' minds when they do have great administrative power over many, many aspects of American life and work? I think fairness is really important because it touches on the legitimacy of the process, its outcome, the trustworthiness of the process. One of the most important touchstones of my interest in administrative law was a book I read as a practicing lawyer called Profits of Regulation by Thomas McCraw. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but I highly recommend it. McCraw was a business historian at Harvard Business School, and it's a wonderful book about how the work of administrative agencies is both personal but also systemic, and the importance of having a vision 
as to what you're trying to accomplish and then trying to be realistic about the tools that you're given. But fairness obviously matters, accessibility, transparency, reducing barriers to participation in a manner that makes it easier for people who are affected to participate, all very important. We're speaking with Fernando LaGuarda. He's general counsel at AmeriCorps and a new member of the Council of the Administrative Conference of the United States. And that idea of accessibility extends to Americans that might be affected, but not everyone has the means to challenge the government or to even understand its processes the way, say, corporations do or people with a vested interest in some agency action do. And yet they might be affected. And I guess you've done some work in that area, too, haven't you? Yeah, I think it's really important for administrative agencies to think constantly about how their processes, their decision-making, and their outcomes are accessible to affected parties and then also to the wider community. That we have a tendency to, as a result of our expertise, start to talk in code and start to think about our outputs as uh, very specialized. But in fact, they are of broad interest, and so we should constantly be thinking about making them easier to understand, being proactive about seeking input from stakeholders, from communities, and reducing barriers constantly. Because barriers come into play, they sometimes are just the uh, result of trying to make processes simpler for those who are participating. But they sometimes create their externalities, and then you have to revisit the process always in order to refine it. It seems like there are communities that might be affected by, say, a rulemaking gambit, and rulemaking figures largely in the whole administrative apparatus, and yet they may not understand how to comment, or there might be language barriers, or just awareness, which makes it incumbent on agencies to have really good outreach to make sure that they are accessible. Fair to say? Yeah, I think that that is an obligation for everybody who works in government, and especially if you have authority that you are able to exercise, that that you are constantly examining the communities you're serving and whether or not they can fairly participate in your processes. We create barriers unintentionally, sometimes intentionally, but frequently unintentionally. And so language, accessibility to people who have vision or hearing, accessibility concerns, outreach to communities and representatives of communities to include them in process, very important to ensure fairness and also to ensure equity. Interesting that when you mention hearing and sight and so forth, there can be some real irony in there, for example, in the FDA, which finally finalized some rulemaking from a law, I think back in 2018, to make hearing aids available without prescription and so forth, over-the-counter type of product in some situations. And here you have rulemaking, which might involve the hearing impaired and the benefit they would get from that rule. So maybe that's a good example. Yeah. And from what I recall about that example, sometimes it takes a little bit of attention from a different perspective in order to get agencies to think differently about what they're doing. I mean, there are good reasons for regulating devices, perhaps in a way where historically there are barriers to accessing them. But sometimes it takes an outside perspective to say, you know what, we need to lower costs here. We need to enhance access and that is about trade-offs, which is a really important principle in administrative law. We have to think about trade-offs all the time, be aware of them, be deliberate and transparent about the trade-offs that we're making. 
And given your newness, let me just ask you, what do you plan for ACUS? What do you think are the challenges there in general for administrative law? Any specific issues that interest you that are before the council right now? Well, as you say, I am new, so I'm coming to it very humble about the opportunity and very excited to play a role in such a wonderful community. One of the great things about the administrative law bar writ large is that combination of theory and practice, real attention to issues that matter to people, but also bringing in perspectives from the research and scholarly community. So I think of ACUS really in that best tradition of multidisciplinary work to improve the working of government. And that makes me very excited. I mean, of course, I'm interested in reducing barriers to participation in government, thinking about the interests of individuals in particular who have been marginalized, who may face challenges when it comes to accessing government service, thinking about the impact of rules on under-resourced organizations, for example, the nonprofit community that carries out so much work on behalf of the public and their interactions with government. That's important to me as well. And just briefly, what issues come up before AmeriCorps that you have to deal with, by the way, as the general counsel there? AmeriCorps is an amazing agency with powers to leverage, harness, volunteerism, and the spirit of the American people to serve one another in communities across the country. And so we have a really complicated statute that requires constant interpretation. Our authorities to work with government agencies and power their work, uh, for example, through FEMA Corps or the Centers for Disease Control and our new partnership with them, with Public Health AmeriCorps, the work that we're doing to make the resources of the American Rescue Plan real in communities across the country. So all of those issues to lift the mission of the agency and really make it one of the accelerators to American recovery. It's really exciting. And it means partnership with other agencies, with communities, with state commissions across the country. So lots of legal issues. And we do a lot of grant making, which is adjudication, and that's a kind of uh, policy as well. So very, very fun, and I have a great team here. And you're a busy man then. <laughs> that's what makes the job fun, being busy, but also learning. I think that's a constant in my career has been enjoying learning, no matter what I was doing, whether it was in private practice or in teaching, and now here working in government. But I have really appreciated the opportunity to work with public servants shoulder to shoulder because I really now see that commitment and dedication of the federal workforce to improving lives and implementing the laws faithfully. And it's really inspiring. Fernando LaGuarda is General Counsel of AmeriCorps and a new member of the Council of the Administrative Conference of the United States. Thanks so much for joining me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Tom, for your work and for this opportunity. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his bio at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. 
Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University, and spent the majority of her career at the FBI, and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day jobs, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. 
And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? 
You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.